This is an ABC podcast. As I speak, I've just had my second coffee for the day. It's something I do every day. Having knocked it back, I can now feel all the fuzziness in my head seep away. My focus is sharpening and I've got this, okay, ready to go thing going on. And apart from all that, the taste and smell of coffee is just so alluring to me. In all honesty, I do think I'm a caffeine addict. And I know this because every time I have to go without it, I get a nasty headache and I feel listless and a bit hopeless as well. Why am I telling you all this? It's because Michael Pollan is back on Conversations today. Michael's here to talk about not just caffeine, but opium and mescaline as well. Michael Pollan's a best-selling author who writes for the New York Times, the New Yorker and other prestigious journals. And he's written a book of essays on these three psychoactive substances, which all come from plants. Michael's interested in not just how caffeine, opium and mescaline affect our brains and how they change us as people, but how they create a shift in the societies that make use of them. Michael Pollan's new book is called This Is Your Mind on Plants, and he's in California at the moment. Hello, Michael. Hey, Richard. This book comes from the point of view, you say, of someone who's actually a gardener rather than a chemist. How long have you been a gardener for, Michael? Oh, God, I think I started when I was eight years old. I was obsessed with, uh, I had a grandfather who was a wonderful gardener, and I liked nothing better than to be in his garden around harvest time and uh, just marveled at the fact these plants produce these incredible things of value. So my interest in plants goes, goes pretty far back. And my interest in what plants do for us, the, the various gifts they give us, one of which is uh, the ability to change consciousness. What questions were in your mind when you started putting these stories about these three substances together, Mike? Well, one, one question was, uh, why do people like to change consciousness? This seems like a curious desire. Uh, it turns out to be universal. Um, just about every culture on the planet uses some plant or fungi to change consciousness. And that could be as simple as caffeine, uh, although it's not exactly simple, but as uncontroversial as caffeine to, to psychedelics, which change consciousness in radical ways. And there was only one, when they surveyed all these countries to, and cultures, they, they found one that did not have such plants, and that was the Inuit in Greenland. And the only reason was nothing psychoactive grew where they lived. Um, so I think it's safe to call it a, a universal human drive. And, and that, that, then that led to the second question, which is, why? What is this good for? You know, drug taking is dangerous. It makes you more likely to have accidents. If you overdose, you could die. Uh, it makes you more vulnerable to predation. It makes you more reckless. Uh, so you would think that the drug takers would have been edited out of evolution by natural selection, but that isn't the case. They're still with us. <laughs> they are us. Do you see these, these, these substances as a kind of a companion to humans that have been with us like well, the same way the dogs have for thousands and thousands of years? Yeah, many of them are domesticated in the same way dogs are, and that these are companions that travel through you know, natural history with us. Um, we use them and they use us. And for some of these plants, their evolutionary strategy involves appealing to our desires. I mean, think of, think of the coffee plant, right? This is a plant that's native range was very limited in the Arabian Peninsula, on Ye in Yemen and in Ethiopia. And now the whole uh, tropical band around the world from Vietnam to South America is coffee growing. Millions of acres have been allotted to it. It was a very winning strategy for this plant when it figured out that the chemical it produced changed consciousness in humans, uh, a species with a proclivity for moving around the planet and incredible ingenuity in terms of reshaping the land to suit uh, a species like coffee. Uh, so coffee's been a huge winner. But of course, we've won too. So yeah, they are companions. They're helpmates. Our history and their history would be very different had we not encountered one another back in the seven or eight hundreds when uh, humans first discovered coffee. Why have you chosen these three substances in particular, opium, caffeine, and mescaline? Well, each of them represents one of the big classes of drugs. Drugs are divided into, you know, uppers and downers, 
stimulants and sedatives, and then psychedelics are very separate. So I wanted one upper, that was caffeine, one downer, that was opium, and one outer, as I call it, uh, a psychedelic, and that was mescaline. But I also just happened to be interested in these, and I've been engaged with them, um, especially caffeine and opium, for a very long time. Mescaline was new to me. But as you know, I wrote a book called How to Change Your Mind about psychedelics, and uh, I hadn't focused on mescaline because I was focusing on the scientific research going on, which is mostly about psilocybin. Mescaline is kind of an orphan psychedelic. It's, it's been ignored. But what was interesting to me about it is that it is used by Aboriginal Americans, the Native Americans, in the form of peyote, the cactus that produces it. And I got very interested in looking at indigenous uses of psychedelics because I think they have a lot to teach us about the wise use of these powerful substances. The essay you wrote on opium, it's actually an update on something you wrote back in the 1990s on the act of growing opium in your own garden. I'm pretty sure you need a license to do that in Australia, to even grow opium. And it is grown here for you know, pharmacological purposes. Was it actually legal to, for you to grow opium in your garden? Well, yes and no. Um, the legal <laughs> status of opium, and this is the, the plant is called Papaver somniferum, is very ambiguous. It is legal to grow Papaver somniferum as a garden plant for ornament, you know, for usual, as you would any other flower. And this is true in the UK too. I'm not sure of the status in Australia. However, if you know what you're doing, if you know that this is uh, a federally scheduled substance and you have any intent to turn it into a drug then you're breaking the law. So it really depends on what's in your mind, not the act <laughs> of planting it, which is kind of bizarre. Anyone who is listening now is, it can no longer grow it legally because you know that pavarsoniferum produces opium. Um, they'll have to prove that, of course. <laughs> so can you just buy the seeds for it at a, like a garden center or something in America? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can order them online. They're sold by lots of... Nowadays, they often don't call them Papaver somniferum because of the controversy around it, um, but they're there, and um, you, can, you can grow them quite easily, and they're one of the most gorgeous flowers in, that you can grow. I mean, the flowers themselves are these very delicate tissue paper petaled things that only last for a day or two, but then this seed head emerges, and it's this, it, it almost looks like a finial, an architectural finial. And it's beautiful. And then these little windows open and release these tiny seeds, uh, and they spread through the garden. Um, but my interest in it was more pharmacological when I first did it, because I had read this underground press book called Opium for the Masses that said, hey, you can grow poppies in your garden, and you can make this narcotic tea from it. And I was, you know, like a lot of gardeners, I'm curious to see if it's possible. And I was curious to see if I could do it. And so I, I planted the seeds. I started corresponding with the man who wrote the book, a man named Jim Hogshire. And about halfway through the growing season, news arrived that he'd been arrested for the crime of manufacturing opium. And the only evidence against him was a box of dried poppy heads he'd bought at the florist shop. And you can buy them at any florist shop. And a copy of his own book, which proved his intent. And I was in the exact same boat um, because I was corresponding with him. My information was on his hard drive, declaring my intent. <laughs> and uh, I got tangled up in this very obscure, scary front in the drug war, which was, of course, raging in the late 90s, and uh, wrote this essay for Harper's Magazine. But when the lawyers read it, uh, the first lawyer who read it told me, you can't publish this. It's a confession to a federal crime. So I really didn't know what to do. And then the, the publisher, uh, Rick MacArthur, had another lawyer read it, a First Amendment lawyer, who insisted I should publish it for the good of the country <laughs> as a First Amendment claim of you know criticism of the government. That's what the First Amendment is for. Anyway, between the conflicting advice of the lawyers, I ended up publishing it, but I omitted the most provocative passages or at least what the government regarded as the most provocative passages, in which I told you how to make poppy tea, and also where I described its effects uh, when, when I drank it. 
And so I always felt bad that I had self-censored and had looked forward to a time when I could safely publish the whole essay. But then something else came to my attention, something I didn't know at the time. Nobody knew at the time. But in 1996, when I was having my summer of fear and paranoia about growing opium and possibly getting arrested, <laughs> Purdue Pharma, the pharmaceutical company, uh, was introducing Oxycontin. And this opiate, uh, which they aggressively marketed as safer than other opiates, as less addictive, uh, neither of which was true, and they knew that, they were planting the seeds of the opioid crisis, which has since killed about 800,000 Americans, I think, and led to you know countless cases of addiction, and has been a public health cr crisis in this country ever since. And so while the government was looking at people doing this, the illegal act of making poppy tea in their gardens, a big pharmaceutical company was legally addicting uh, millions of Americans to uh, opioids. So the peace becomes a parable of the drug war and, and its absurdity and, its, and the damage it's done to this country. So just to be clear, it's, it was perfectly legal for you to grow that flower in your garden. Go for your life, the government says. That's fine. Make this pretty flower. But, but then the moment you try and extract that latex, that kind of white little sap that comes out of the plant or you have a book telling you how to make opium tea on your shelf, that's when you've broken the law. Yes, you break the law before you make the opium. You break the law when you form the intention to make the opium. And the book is a way, or the article is a way for them to show that you had that intention. It's quite a strange wrinkle. It's called mens rea. It's the mental intent to do something that makes it a crime. Uh, an otherwise completely benign Act. And I say in the first paragraph, uh, dear reader, if you want to continue to grow opium poppies, stop reading right now. Uh, <laughs> because, because reading the article is an is a indication of your mental state. Well, what do you think all this tells you about American society in particular, that it's legal to grow the poppy, but illegal to extract the sap or even to think about making opium tea, yet Purdue Pharmaceuticals and, and others can make a, a substance like OxyContin mass-produce it and have a situation where whole communities are destroyed by that. What's the disjuncture you see there? Yeah, there, and there's no comparison in terms of the intensity of Oxycontin versus poppy tea. Poppy tea is not going to kill you no matter how much you drink of it. And it's, you know, it's very mild. It's served at funerals in the Middle East, uh, in the Arab world, uh, to lift people's pain, just to kind of take the edge off their grief. Whereas Oxycontin can, you know, do incredible damage. It just points to the absurdity and the arbitrary nature of the drug war. Look, in the years of prohibition in America, in the 1910s, uh, when it was illegal to sell alcohol, it was perfectly legal to sell opium in the form of these, they were called women's tonics. They were, these were, you know, bottles of liquid you bought in the drugstore. And even the women who were fighting for prohibition chopping down apple trees with their axes because apples were made into alcohol, they would kick back with uh, a bottle of opium, of laudanum, which is opium in, in an alcohol, a tincture, uh, or cannabis, which was also legal at the same time. So the, the status of these drugs are constantly changing depending on society's views at the time and the government's views and needs at the time. And this has sort of knocked the legs out from the legitimacy of the drug war where... The, the biggest public health crisis tied to drug abuse stemmed from legal opiates, not illegal opiates. I mean, yes, people would start on their prescription opiates and then become addicted, and then the doctor would, take, would throw them off their prescription, and then they would turn to street heroin, and that's really where they got into trouble. But they began with these prescriptions. So it just suggested it suggests that is the government really interested in our public health in fighting the drug war that's the you know that's the ostensible argument but there's a good case to be made that the government's interest in the drug war is more about politics than public health a journalist named Dan Baum got in an interview with John Ehrlichman. John Ehrlichman was um, President Nixon's domestic policy advisor uh, and it's Nixon who starts the modern drug war in 1970, 50 years ago. And uh, Baum asked Ehrlichman what was the drug war about. And Ehrlichman supposedly told him 
look, we had two enemies in the Nixon White House. Uh, one was black people and the other were hippies. Wow. And we knew if we could criminalize their drugs, cannabis in the case of both of them, psychedelics in the case of the hippies, it would give us a, a power. We could go in and disrupt their communities. We could demonize their leaders. And that's what it was about. It was about politics. It was about power. And we do know that the drug war has given the government uh, an incredible amount of power. It's a very easy crime to prove. You go in, you find someone who's got cannabis or, or heroin or, you know, dried poppies, and there's the proof. It's very easy to, to bring that conviction. Um, not only that, we have laws in this country that give the government the right to confiscate any property that's involved in a drug crime. That means my property where I was growing these poppies theoretically could have been confiscated by the government. And even if I was not found guilty, because the property had been found guilty of uh, a crime. So people whose kids were growing cannabis sometimes would lose their land because um, they didn't even know it was happening, but the property was guilty of a crime. So, and our civil liberties were, were badly eroded during the drug war. So, I, you know, given that, plus the fact that the government turned a blind eye to, to opiates, makes me, makes me convinced that the drug war was more about politics than it was about public health. You know, Michael, I think we might have talked about this last time you were on the program, but I, I'd never had opiates in my life until I had a very nasty accident about 10 years ago. That was very painful. And I was in hospital, I was given opiates to, to dull the pain. And I don't know what I thought it was going to be like, but it wasn't at all like I imagined it would be like. What was it like? It was well, just the pain went away, of course. That was really nice. Yeah. And then this sense that all is well and all is going to be well sort of settled in my head. Yeah. I had no sensory um, perception alteration at all, just this feeling that all is well and all is going to be well. Is that what you got from the opium tea? Yeah, I mean, it's a milder version of that. It doesn't, uh, it do, it's not a radical change of consciousness, but it does take the edge off. And any kind of aches and pains you have, you're not aware of them at all. And there is this, you know, you're, you feel suffused with this sense of well-being. Um, and the opiates do this. They're, you know, they're various reward chemicals in your brain, and they happen to mimic those chemicals really well. I mean, look at the geography of the opioid crisis. It's worse in these places where economic prospects have dried up, where people are unemployed, um, where there are high levels of misery. This is where people get into trouble. And I think one of the things that's happening is that this is uh, a cheap and accessible pleasure in a life that has very few accessible pleasures. People are medicating themselves. You know, I was surprised to learn that most people who use opiates don't get addicted. I, I kind of assumed it was a quality of the chemical and it was automatic, but it appears to be much more a quality of the life, of the circumstance you're in. You know, of all the people who use opiates, including legal ones, it's like 1% of the people who use them get addicted. And even when you talk about people who use heroin, it's like um, only 20 or 30%, I think, who get addicted. So it makes you wonder, what is addiction? If it's not this disease you catch from a chemical, which is how it's always been depicted to us, if it's about the, the conditions of the, in which you live and, and you know, whether you've had trauma as a child, um, whether you have some mental illness you're trying to medicate. Well, I think in the case of heroin addicts, you often see that people are prepared to debase themselves to whatever degree that's necessary in order to get hold of more of it. That, that, that means addiction, doesn't it, surely? Oh, that is. There is chemical addiction, and some people fall into it. And what's interesting is that the people who don't, um, look, addiction is a terrible sentence, and, um, and people do abase themselves to get their drug to a remarkable extent. People will sell their bodies to satisfy an addiction. But what's interesting is who and why, what's behind it. You know, there's an interesting uh, experiment that was done uh, way back in the 70s. M much of what we know about addiction uh, comes from these uh, experiments with rats where you hook them up to a machine and they have two levers and one administers uh, heroin or morphine to their bloodstream and the, uh, or cocaine and the other administers sugar water, you know, a nutrient. And the rats, the caged rats will press the lever for the drug over and over and over again until they're addicted or dead. 
And this is based on this, we, we concluded that addiction was inevitable if you were exposed to these substances and had access to them. But then this researcher questioned this finding and he, he created another setup where instead of the rats being alone in cages, he created what he called a rat park, a really nice cage with toys and other rats <laughs> to play with and have sex with and really good food. And then he gave them the choice between the morphine and the water. And they used a little bit of morphine, but not oh, much. Oh, that's interesting. And they tended to the water because they didn't need it. They weren't miserable. They weren't in solitary confinement. <laughs> and this, this raises all sorts of interesting questions about how addiction works. And is it a disease or is it an adaptation to a very difficult circumstance or life story? Well, like I said, Michael, I'm addicted to caffeine. and Me too. I've, I've never got to the point where I've tried to sell my body for it, mainly because there'd be no takers. I think that'd be the thing. <laughs> well, that's because uh, it's legal and inexpensive. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed, which is just as well, It could be it? otherwise, Richard. <laughs> what, what do you know about how caffeine works in our heads? Do you, know, do you know much about the science of how it affects us and how it, it, it seems to crawl in and find a very nice home for where we want to make it welcome in our heads? Yes, it is. It is addictive. It doesn't do that to everybody, but it does that to a lot of people. Um, caffeine has a very interesting mechanism of action. Like a lot of drugs, it imitates, it, it, it's molecularly similar to a, to a chemical already resident in the human brain. And in this case, it is a chemical called adenosine. adenosine. This is a chemical that over the course of the day builds up and makes you more and more tired. It prepares you for sleep. Um, it builds what's called sleep pressure as the day goes on. And this chemical fits into a certain receptor in the brain. And caffeine beats it to the punch and gets to this receptor and occupies it in a way so the adenosine never gets there. The adenosine continues to build up in your bloodstream over the course of the day, but it can't have any effect because the caffeine's in the way. Eventually, you metabolize the caffeine, and the adenosine comes back with a, a, a fury, and you're more tired than ever. What do you do? Well, you have more caffeine. Um, the brilliance of caffeine is it proposes itself as the solution to the problem it creates. <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a clever chemical. And it has some other effects too, though. It increases our focus, uh, I mean, besides giving us energy. But it's important to understand the energy it gives us, it, it, it's because of this cycle with adenosine, is not a free lunch. It's borrowed from the future, essentially. Whatever energy you have now, you're going to repay in additional tiredness at some point. Uh, but it also improves our focus. It appears to improve our memory. It allows us to work harder and smarter. It improves our athletic performance, our reaction time. It does a lot of really valuable things that allow us to do a kind of work it would be very hard to do without caffeine. The kind of linear, rational, focused thinking that is a hallmark of modern, modern work and, and brain work is facilitated by caffeine. A lot of journalists will do thing, crazy things like go into war zones to report, but you did something vastly more heroic <laughs> for the purpose of your story. You gave up caffeine. Oh, yes, it was so heroic. That was, that was heroic. I can't even imagine it and it frightens me even talking about it. <laughs> how, 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 did you withdraw, how did you withdraw from caffeine, Michael, slowly, or did you just go cold turkey? No, I went cold turkey. So I gave up caffeine for uh, three months. I did it because I wanted to learn what its power was. And I don't think you can understand the power of any drug in your life unless you give it up, or the power of any habit. Um, and this, I had been challenged to do this by a, one of the researchers I was interviewing, Roland Griffith, uh, who was a preeminent researcher on psychoactives. And, and before he worked on psychedelics, which he now works on, he worked on caffeine. And he said, you, you know, you should, really, you should really take a break from caffeine and really understand what it's all about. So I did that. And it was one of the harder things I've done. Um, <laughs> I hated it. <laughs> I was, the first week was hell. I, was, uh, I felt like there was a, a fog that never lifted. I mean, usually you wake up in a bit of a fog and you have that cup of coffee, as you described at the top of the show, 
and it clears out the fog and suddenly everything is just crisp and clear once again and you feel ready to go. That never happened. <laughs> I remained in that fog. It was as if a veil had fallen between me and reality. And I could not focus. And of course, to a writer, focus is everything. Everything. That's the job of the writer, is to take this, you know, the, the blooming multiplicity of experience and channel it through the, you know, this, the eye of the needle of a, of a sentence, uh, of a paragraph, of a page. It's a very linear process, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it for a couple of weeks. I felt like I had acquired attention deficit disorder, uh, which I never had. I never had a problem with concentration, but I understood how easily you could be distracted, and doing one thing became incredibly difficult. Podcast, broadcast, and online. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. We've just been talking about caffeine, which you and I both freely admit we're addicted to. Your essay got me wondering about one thing in particular. I find the taste and smell of coffee to be so wonderful. And I think it smells better than anything on the, <laughs> on the, on the earth, actually. And I wonder, am I addicted to caffeine or coffee because it tastes and smells so good? Or does it taste and smell so good because I'm addicted? What do you think? It's the latter. Um, this is coffee is actually quite bitter. Most people don't like the first taste they have of it. Children don't like it. We learn to like it, as Roland Griffith, the uh, the, the the researcher, drug researcher, said. Nobody actually likes the taste of scotch. It's the association of that taste and smell with the feeling it gives you that causes you to like it. So it's what's called a reinforcer. And whenever you link a reinforcer to a flavor or an aroma, you will develop a taste for it. And this, this happens even with honeybees. By exposing them to a certain scent along with caffeine, which they like, um, they develop a preference for that scent. So it's kind of a well-known fact of, of pharmacology. So I'm afraid it's the chemical that comes first, and um, our associations with that chemical is, is what makes us fall in love with the, the aroma and the taste of coffee. The most interesting thing I think you say in this essay is that you say that when you weren't on caffeine, you didn't feel like yourself. That's right. What does that tell you, the fact that you didn't feel like yourself? Well, that was the most amazing thing. Here I was, I had removed the, the consciousness-changing agent, but I d felt less like myself. And what that told me is that myself, um, which is to say my default consciousness, the way I've, I looked at the world, the way I felt in, in my everyday experience, was a caffeinated self. And that it had become so deeply woven into, into my life experience that being without it felt unnatural, felt, uh, felt as though it wasn't transparent. The more transparent consciousness was the caffeinated consciousness. And, you know, I'd been drinking coffee or tea since I was 10. So you could see why it, it kind of normalized itself. Yeah, so that's who I was. That was my, my default consciousness was caffeinated. And I think that's true for most of us. Something like 90% of us have a daily engagement with caffeine, whether in the form of coffee or tea, or in the case of many children, soda. Uh, most sodas, the top six sodas in this country, are spiked with caffeine. Why? Well, it isn't for the flavor. Uh, <laughs> it's because uh, the industry wants to get everybody started early as possible on their caffeine addiction. Australia has become a much more industrious, hardworking and wealthier society than it was 40 years ago. And I think some of that can be put down to the shift from the pub 
to the cafe. Like mm-hmm. Drinks after work is not such a thing anymore as it is the getting together for coffee over breakfast in, in this country. Part of that can be put down to the fact that the, the kids of Italian migrants who arrived in Australia in the 1950s started serving a really nice form of coffee, like this really new kind of beautiful espresso coffee that Australia's kind of exported to the United States and other parts of the world now, this, this kind of new espresso culture. I, I wonder what you think of that about the shift in culture that coffee brings. Well, yeah, Australia has a wonderful coffee culture. I mean, I've been there several times in the last few years and I'm always struck by how nice the cafes are and how good the coffee is. And I think the flat white is a great invention. And it's interesting, I remember being in Melbourne a couple of years ago and there was a coffee shop called, it was, they sold coffee and tea and it was called something like the Caffeine Shop. It was the most honest, <laughs> honest store name in history. It was like a wine shop being called an alcohol shop. Um, it's like, let's cut to the chase. We know what this is about. But there is a kind of uh, relationship between alcohol consumption and coffee consumption and that when coffee and tea were introduced to Europe, which happens in, this, in the middle of the 17th century. In England, it's, it's the 1650s. Coffee, tea, and chocolate all arrive in the same decade. What a great decade. Mm. And you see, people notice very quickly a shift and that there's less drinking and more coffee consumption. And, and coffee, which preceded tea in England as the most popular drink, was so popular that you know all these coffee houses... Uh, sprang up. Uh, people spent less time in taverns and more time in coffee houses. And that breeds another kind of behavior and another kind of work ethic and uh, another kind of thinking, a much more linear, rational way of thought. And this was noticed by historians and observers at the time. And, and it, was, it was regarded as a good thing and that, you know, office workers were no longer drunk all the time and they were more sober and they, were, they did a better job. And people noticed pretty quickly that more work was getting done and more, more mental work was getting done. They often say that coffee is the thing that shifted England from a magic society to a science society. When you get the coffee houses in London, that's, that's when you have people like Isaac Newton, Robert Hooke, Huygens, all these other great artists of the scientific revolution of the 1600s, congregating, meeting in coffee houses, getting themselves caffeinated and hopped up on coffee, arguing, discussing. There was even a story I remember reading once about a shark, a baby shark was found in the Thames once and it was dragged into a coffee shop and dissected in there. And they'll go, oh my God, look at this. Yeah, there was a a coffee house associated with the Royal, uh, what is it called? The Royal Institution, which is the the main science society. The Royal Society, yeah, yeah. Isaac Newton and and Francis Bacon were all involved with. And there was a story, I had heard the story, it was a dolphin, but maybe it was a shark, and that it was, uh, yeah, they got so curious about it, and they had this wonderful specimen, and they dissected it on the table in the coffee house. So it was a different vibe. Um, this is not what people do on alcohol. <laughs> and, um, and you had different coffee houses for every profession. Um, they, were, they were organized by interest. So there was that one for science. There was another one for literature where Alexander Pope and Dryden hung out and uh, Daniel Defoe. And then there were the business-related coffee houses. There was one called Lloyd's that became Lloyd's of London. You could go to Lloyd's and, if, and insure a shipment. Uh, and there was another one associated with selling the buying and selling of stocks. Uh, and that became the, the stock market. So this was a really vibrant movement, and it's a kind of conversation that wouldn't have happened on uh, alcohol. It was also a very democratic space. It was the one public place where people of all classes could mingle. And there was a lot of politics that was talked about, which, which the government found threatening. There was actually a drug war briefly against coffee. Um, Charles II uh, sought to close down the coffee houses because he thought that they were... There was going to be an insurrection. Uh, people were talking about politics. And uh, he failed, though. Nobody, everybody ignored him when he tried to close down the coffee houses, and he had to back off. And, and the French Revolution, too, you know, began not in a, the, the storming of the Bastille. That idea didn't pop out of a tavern. It was a coffee house. It was people who were drinking coffee came up with that idea. There's a part of your book that I really wondered about that I hadn't thought of, which is the difference between coffee and tea. Now, now, they both have caffeine in them. They're both caffeine delivery systems, if you like. Yes. But coffee, you sort of knock it back, you get out and get to work. But tea in England and in Japan 
are surrounded, the consumption of tea is surrounded by a little bit of ceremony. And it's a, it's a moment when you pause and stop and reflect. What do you think that tells you, the difference between coffee and tea here, Michael? Well, it's very interesting. They're completely different cultures, coffee culture and tea culture. Um, coffee culture is more masculine and brawny and outdoorsy, and, and, and tea is more feminine and more um, delicate, more elegant. It's less strong, of course. It's about half as strong as coffee, um, a given cup. And it's very interesting how we've uh, made all these different associations. It doesn't have to be that way, though. There's something arbitrary about those associations. You know, you're, you're describing kind of the high-class use of tea. But, of course, tea also had a working-class manifestation. And it was the drink of the working class for a long time. Very strong, bitter tea with tons of sugar in it to the, to the point where many calories were being obtained from drinking tea. At the same time, in Asia, tea was a spiritual thing. It began as an aid to meditation to help, help the, you know, the Buddhist monks stay up all night meditating. And then, you, of course, you have the tea ceremony, which is this incredibly elaborate ceremonial way to consume tea that is a, is a kind of physical and digestible manifestation of Zen. So different cultures put different interpretations on these psychoactives. And it, it makes you realize it isn't necessarily inherent in the substance, but a lot of it is just the associations we bring to it. But coffee and tea were very important to the rise of capitalism because of the kind of work they uh, encouraged or fostered. Um, you know, you could do mental work on coffee and tea that you couldn't do on alcohol. Double entry bookkeeping, you know, office work, but also um, working with machines, you know, where you have the danger of using big machines and the chances of error are much greater, of course, if you're, if you're intoxicant as alcohol rather than caffeine. Caffeine, you could be careful and focused and alert. And the other thing that, that caffeine allowed you to do is work longer hours. You know, before coffee and tea, basically you worked from sun up to sundown. There wasn't a night shift. Coffee and tea made that possible. It allowed us to get off of the, you know, the rhythms of the sun and, and the rhythms of our bodies and adapt to um, the schedule of our workplace and of the machines and their needs. It's a radical shift. So when you went off coffee for all that time, how did you sleep? Like a teenager. <laughs> I, had, I had, this was the great blessing of getting off co coffee and tea. I slept better than I've slept since I was quite young. It was great, really deep sleeps. And, and we know that the negative uh, around caffeine, if there is one, and there is one, is that it undermines the quality, not necessarily the quantity, but the quality of our sleep. There's something called deep sleep or slow wave sleep that uh, is not associated with dreaming. It's, it's deeper than that. It's something your brain needs to kind of clear out the, the messiness and the static of the day and you know, put away everything on the desktop or put it in its place. Caffeine, if there's still caffeine circulating in your body when you go to sleep, your deep sleep is not going to be as deep. And uh, as it is, as we get older, we have less of it. And the interruption of deep sleep or the lack of it has been uh, correlated with dementia. And um, one of the saddest things in my research was realizing that most of the caffeine researchers, actually all the ones I interviewed, it wasn't that big a number, but there were three or four of them, none of them used caffeine. Sleep is in tension with caffeine, which we all kind of understand um, caffeine stays in the body a long time. Uh, a cup of coffee you have at noon, a quarter of the caffeine in it will still be circulating at midnight. Um, so that is a good argument for knocking off early, you know, restricting your caffeine consumption to uh, the morning. So for all that, you did get back on the drug. You did get back on to caffeine. Michael, how damn good did it feel? <laughs> To return to the evil black drug. Well, as good as the sleeps were, the return to caffeine was a red letter day in my life. It was, it was such a, it was one of the more positive drug experiences I've had. Um, I looked forward to it for weeks. I planned out where I was going to have it. 
I made it a flat white, in fact. And that first cup, um, it made me realize that the way I use it, I had used it before, and the way I use it now is kind of a maintenance dose. Uh, you know, we, we, we drink it in order to stop the symptoms of withdrawal. That's what that fog is about. That's what those headaches are about. And that um, when we wake up in the morning, we've been going through withdrawal overnight. And it's not so acute, the symptoms, that it wakes us up. But when we wake up, we know we need a fix. You've cleared your body. Your body is like a caffeine virgin again. When it hits you, it's really powerful. And it's wonderful. It's almost worth getting off to have this experience. <laughs> I highly recommend it. Just get off for a week. And uh, basically, it began with this sense of well-being that kind of... Um, caffeine actually enters every cell in your body, and I could feel it just spreading out and, and, and finding its way into all my cells. And then that feeling increased in intensity until it was a, you know, a mild euphoria. It was really great. But then it kind of turned a little bit, and I started feeling a little compulsive, like, I've got to get some stuff done. So we were sitting in this outdoor cafe, enjoying our coffee, and I suddenly said to my wife, I've got to get to work. And it was Saturday. Um, so we walked home, and she went off to her studio. She's a painter. And um, I sat down at my desk and like, what could I do? What could I get done? And I, and I figured it out, what I had to do. I had to unsubscribe from like a hundred listservs, you know, all the junk mail, <laughs> clogging, clogging my, my email box. And I, and I meticulously went through and unsubscribed from like a hundred of them. Um, felt great. And then I attacked the sweaters in my closet, which were just misfolded and moth-eaten. <laughs> and I had this day of, or half day of like complete compulsiveness. And, uh, and then by noon, I was plotting where I'd get my next cup. I want to move on to mescaline now. Mescaline's an interesting thing to talk about because it, it's not, I don't think it's very well known in Australia because it comes from an American cactus. You read Aldous Huxley's book, The Doors of Perception. and Wonderful book. How, what, how did he describe the experience of being on mescaline? Well, you know, uh, Doors of Perception is a wonderful book. It's really an essay about his first mescaline trip, and it was one of the first trip reports ever written, and it's beautifully written. What he found is that mescaline kind of absorbs you or immerses you in the here and now to an extent you seldom are so absorbed. It's not like other psychedelics, which take you to another world. You see worlds that don't exist and, and um, uh, travel in time and, you know, trip is the right word. In the case of mescaline, it's, it's really different. Um, he was absorbed in the folds in his trousers and, or a flower on a table, which he could look at for hours at a time. And you have this sensation or this reality, I'm not really sure, that the portals of your senses have opened wider and that more sense information is available to you than it ever has been before. That you see nuances of color you never noticed before. And the world is just so fascinating. You know, you need nothing else but to stare at a bowl of apricots uh, or to uh, look at the, the ripples in the water outside. I was, on, I was on a house right on the water when I had my experience. And the way Huxley understood it was that Consciousness is, is, a, is filtering perceptions. It, it only allows in the sense information and perceptions that you need to survive. It's not letting in everything that's out there. And there's a lot more out there than we know. And that's what he meant by the doors of perception. That when they're cleansed and opened, there is a surfeit of reality, an almost overwhelming amount of reality that we don't see. So it's not so much a beautiful illusion, it's more like something that's hyper real. And if we were to keep staring at that, if we 
had the perception of that all the time, it'd be like staring at the sun or something. It'd just burn us well, out. Well, yeah, it could. It can overwhelm you. The other thing that concerned him is if you saw all this and were riveted by it the way he was, you wouldn't get anything done. You would be kind of quietist. Um, you would be distracted so or so interested in the folds of your trousers, you wouldn't sit down and write a book um, or do anything else. That was a concern. But he, he basically came to the conclusion that Consciousness is, is limiting, is a valve that lets in only a trickle of what it might let in. And there's so much more out there. And I found it a very accurate description of the experience. Um, mine, mine mirrored it in many ways. And I think it's what's unique about about masculine. Your research in this led you to something called the Native American church and the, the use of uh, peyote or mescaline that's taken from the peyote cactus amongst Native American people. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, you know, as I said earlier, I really wanted to understand how indigenous people use psychedelics. Many indigenous groups have a psychedelic that they use in their, of course, they don't call it that. They call it a sacred medicine um, that they use in their religious uh, or healing rituals. The reason I was curious about that is because we're still figuring out how to use psychedelics. You know, they were very new in the West. They, they don't pop up till the 50s and 60s. We had, they didn't come with an instruction manual. We had no idea how to use them responsibly or productively. Um, yes, many people had very positive experiences on LSD in the 60s, but they were also used recklessly and people got into trouble and people did stupid things like you know, spiking the punch bowl with LSD and giving it to people without their permission, something the CIA also did, which seems unspeakably cruel. Then you've got these Native Americans who've been using peyote, we now know, for 6,000 years. So how do they use it? And, and I decided to explore that. And I found that actually there is a lot we can learn from them. Um, when they use peyote in ceremony, there is always an elder involved, someone who knows the territory and can guide people. It's never done casually. It's always done with a purpose, usually to heal someone who is struggling with alcoholism or trauma, sexual abuse. It is always done in a ceremonial way with ritual. And if you think about it, people who use drugs in a ritual way are not the people who tend to get in trouble with them. Um, think about people who use alcohol in a ritual way and follow you know, the social norms around alcohol use, drinking only in the evenings with other people, with food. So I think ritual is very important to using drugs in a, in a constructive way rather than a destructive way. You said there that, that's, that it was used for healing purposes. Do you mean like for the culture of, as a whole of Native Americans? Both, both. And it's very interesting. It, it certainly is healing for individuals. And I have interviewed many people who kicked addictions uh, through peyote ceremonies. I just interviewed someone uh, this weekend who had been a meth addict and an, and an alcoholic uh, and in his mid-30s. Uh, he'd been really disconnected from his traditions. He was Native American. He was Lakota through a healing ceremony with peyote was able to give up his addiction and confront him confront himself and resolve to stop using but it also healed at the cultural level because peyote became a, a religious ceremony that knitted the community together and that's what i found so interesting you know in our culture psychedelics were disruptive in the 60s you know whether in whether you like that disruption or not it disrupted the status quo. In the Native American church, it's a profoundly conservative uh, force. It, it, it encourages social cohesion. It encourages community. It's a celebration of traditions because it's a collective thing. It's always in a group. And everyone in the group is focused on the person who needs healing. In a way, it's a little like an AA meeting with uh, you know one person, um, the focus, telling his story and coming up with a narrative of rebirth, usually, that is reinforced by the group, uh, by their approbation. And something similar is happening in the peyote ceremony. So um, it's important to remember just how traumatized American Indians were when the peyote ceremony was rediscovered um, in the 1880s. This is a moment where Indian culture was on the verge of absolute annihilation um, because of official U.S. government policy. 
uh, we were forcing tribes, uh, many of whom had been nomadic, to settle on reservations on terrible land that we gave them in, in Oklahoma. We forbade them from following their rituals. We actually made them illegal, and they remained illegal until the 1970s, believe it or not. And uh, we were taking their children away and sending them to cutting their hair and sending them to boarding schools that had the explicit goal, and this was stated, of killing the Indian and saving the man. So this is a traumatized culture. And they, this is when they turned to peyote. And they found peyote one of the most helpful practices for healing that trauma, both collectively and individually. Michael, it's always amazing speaking with you. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Pleasure to speaking to you too. Michael Pollan is the author of This Is Your Mind on Plants. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Langoth Black Mountain. Yeah. Um, you're out. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, you get that double look like, really? One night they just kick the door Finally down. Finally get to Walcher by 5pm. I'm trying to flush the heroin down the loo. It looks... In some ways it looks like a light bulb with a little antenna. In other ways it looks kind of like... Um, it looks like a sex toy. From hunting for thylacines in the Tasmanian wilderness... It's a quadruped. Stocky. It's got the right shaped ears. To chasing a Russian spy through Sydney streets. And then Sergei pulled out a $50 bill and then dropped his trousers. From an avalanche to an addiction. You're literally hearing the sound of two pieces of the planet shifting against each other. And a mad dash down the coast in some of the worst floods in living memory. One night in Tamworth, up at 5 a.m. You will find laughs, you will find danger. These are real Australian stories and everyone comes with a little twist. I go, yeah, I'm just going to buy a one-way ticket. Just search for days like these in your favourite podcast app. And, yeah, that's a vision that you're not going to get out of your mind anytime soon. So join me, Elizabeth Coolass, for more stories about the moment when everything changes. Thank you.